Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We'll be in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, The passage we're going to be using today is also found in Luke chapter 4, but we'll stay in Matthew for the most part. I just wanted you to be able to take note on that if you're going to be studying and reading along at home with this. If you're visiting Christ Church, my name's Mark. We're glad you're with us. Uh, I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here at the church, and we're on this journey. We're in the 11th week of this journey through the Gospels, learning about Jesus and opening ourselves up to why we're told what we're told about him. And let me catch up on the first 10 weeks really briefly. Jesus was given to us by God. Uh, His father asked him to come to earth and to live among us to display a way to to know who God is and to understand in a better way God's plan for us. He was born and raised in a very humble, simple Jewish home. He was trained until the age of 13 in the ways of the Jewish law. He was raised in the synagogue. Uh, He understood God's plan through Israel for all the world and the promise of the Messiah. At the age of 13, he would have been bar mitzvahed, which was the Jewish rite of becoming a man and being known in the community uh, as one of the men. And he would have been bar mitzvahed in the people's ways. He apprenticed under uh, a carpenter. We believe his father Joseph uh, may have been a carpenter because Jesus was called the carpenter. And he probably trained under Joseph and apprenticed under him and learned that trade. Uh, Last week, he was baptized by a relative by the name of John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. That also was prophesied in the Old Testament about one who would come like Elijah. And we talked about that last week. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And coming up out of the water, the Holy Spirit moved and God spoke a blessing over Jesus. And before he preached a sermon, before he performed a miracle before he gathered one disciple, before the crowd started gathering around him, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, gives us instrumental information for us to understand what took place. Then Jesus, T-H-E-N, a a strong hinge word, tying together what happened after the baptism, immediately Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him. That progression of those two and a half verses is significant. And I want us to walk through a little bit of this as we set ourselves up for the theme of this morning. First of all, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. This was God's plan. Instead of a grand coronation with a crown and a throne and a palace and throngs of people, What happens is immediately following his baptism, he is led into the wilderness. And he's led there by God's will, by the Spirit of God was the one who took him there. So it's simple, it's maybe even uh, too much of a pun or corny for you, but here's the truth. If you want to have a mountaintop experience with God, you're going to have to climb uphill. He doesn't just transport us to those mountaintop experiences. We have to climb up and then we have to come down. It's a part of life. That not everything is easy in God's kingdom. Sometimes the the trials we go through are the best things we can go through, even though they're horrible in the moment. 
So you have to notice that Matthew points out that it was God's will that he go into the wilderness and this concept of the desert or wilderness, interchangeable terms in the language, should remind you of, of the shadow series that we did previous to the gospel series. If you were with us this fall, we did a series where we looked in the Old Testament at moments and people in the Old Testament who foreshadowed what Jesus would fulfill in the New Testament. And those foreshadowing or shadow series as we called it, here's another one. That God would take Jesus into the wilderness like he took the Israelites out of Egypt into the wilderness. And the Israelites would be in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus would be in the wilderness for 40 days. The struggle for food and provisions in the wilderness is the very same struggle for food and provisions that Jesus had. One of the verses that always makes me laugh when I read it is Matthew doesn't think we're very intelligent because he says he was 40 days without food and he was hungry. I could have figured that one out on my own. I go 40 minutes without food and I about pass out. He goes 40 days. And the the language seems to lead me to conclude that it wasn't until the end of this time of weakness, of physical deprivation, that Satan appears and shows up when Jesus is most weak. So not only was he led by the Spirit into the wilderness, but the second piece I want you to see is to be tempted by the devil. God allowed him to go through the temptations like he allowed Job to go through the temptations. And God led him there to be tempted by the devil. But I I have to say this. I just think it's too important for us to ignore. We live in a date and age, and if you don't know me well enough, I'm about to be really sarcastic. So hang with me on that. We live in such a date and an age where we are so far advanced from the biblical times. We're so much more intelligent. We're more thoughtful. We just don't buy into all the lies anymore. And so many of us, even people in this room today, will be sitting here and they hear the word Satan and they roll their eyes. Like Satan is some mythological thing we've created to explain passages of scriptures, you know, to those slower people, to those dreamers, to those non-thinkers, because we're just far too uh, insightful to believe that there actually is a Satan. Let's talk about that. If you're picturing a guy all dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork, stop it. That is a creation of the Bugs Bunny cartoon series and it's not found in your Bible. But I want you to know if you're sitting here today saying, I don't need a Satan and I don't need this and I don't need that. I want to just tell you one thing that that sets my feet on a foundation I'm willing to trust. Jesus believed there was a Satan, so I do. He talked about Satan regularly. He talked about evil He called him the adversary, the father of lies, the devil, Beelzebub, and the Satan. So I'm not not trying to to blow your mind, but I'm trying to open it. If you're sitting here today saying, well, I just don't believe there's a devil, then you don't believe something Jesus warned you about regularly. Mark 14, verse 38. Jesus said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's alluding to the fact that this, what God asked him to go through in temptation is something we will all go through in temptation. And it should take us back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden. But before we head there, I want to tell you a story that I found very, just a great illustration that's always reminded me of who I am and my struggles And I've shared it in years past, but it's been several years ago, so uh, I don't assume you remember what I said last week. I'm pretty sure you won't remember this. It's a story of a Texas preacher who tells the story about what happened in his church. He had a youth minister he really admired. It was a young man just out of college. He was single, but he had an Irish setter that he loved. And the Irish setter got really sick. And I'm a dog guy, so this moved me. 
the iris setter got really sick. So he took the iris setter to the veterinarian who went to his church. And the veterinarian allowed him to bring his sleeping bag. And for one night, because he just couldn't imagine leaving his dog in that sick condition, he stayed at the veterinarian's offices in the room by the cage to make sure his dog would make it. He loved his dog. Well, the senior minister saw this relationship and decided he wanted to, to teach the church. When the dog got better, he had the youth minister bring the dog to church one Sunday, which is a great service. And so this Irish setter came on stage with the youth minister and the senior minister, and he had a red ball that he chased and fetched every day. And the senior minister took the ball from the dog, and standing, the youth minister here, the dog here, and the senior minister, he bounced the ball down the aisle, and he said, fetch! And the dog stayed right there. All the dog did was look up at his master. Stayed right there. And the preacher, being very smart, because most of them are, he said, it's obviously that church authority doesn't make this dog fetch. So then he asked the banker to come up from the church, and the banker came up with a big wad of bills. And he waved it in front of the dog's face, and the dog followed his hand back and forth. Then he put the ball in the same hand with the money, and he bounced it down the aisle, and the dollars fluttered, and he said, fetch! And the dog just stopped, did nothing, looked up at his master and stayed still. He thought, well, it's clear that fortune doesn't make this dog want to fetch. So he said, here's what we're going to do. Let's try peer pressure. He had the whole congregation on the count of three yell fetch when he bounced the ball. So they gave him the ball, and he said, one, two, three, and the whole church said, fetch, and he bounced the ball, and the dog did nothing but look up at his master. So he said, I got another idea, and he got this really pretty 18-year-old girl to come up on stage. And she came up on stage, and she petted the dog's head, rubbed under his chin, and then very seductively, she whispered in his ear, fetch. (laughs) And she bounced the ball down the aisle. Now, they said the dog flinched, but he didn't move. And he said, well, it's clear that romantic passion doesn't motivate this dog to fetch. So he said, I wonder what motivates the dog to fetch. And he threw the ball to the youth minister. And the youth minister, without any pomp or circumstance, said, fetch, and bounced the ball. And the dog shot down the aisle, picked up the ball, ran right back, gave it back to his master. And the preacher said these words, who do you fetch for? And that illustration has always stuck with me. We, we live in a world that says, hey, do this for the money or for the sex or for the fame or for the power or for the authority and live in all this world. But the question of the morning for every single one of us today is, when tempted, who are we willing to fetch for? When we answer that question, we'll find out whose disciple we are. And in light of that, I'd like to take you now to Matthew 4 and process this under two major points. The first point is this. There are only three kinds of temptations we face. No matter what your circumstances or context is, there's only three kinds. And I want to show you where I derive that from. 1 John 2, verse 16. This is not in debate among scholars. Everyone agrees that what John's doing here is he is giving this uh, taxonomy of sin, if you will. This listing of how sins fall. And here's what he says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And this takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent, Satan, tempts Adam and Eve in the garden. It said that he, God said, this tree is forbidden from you. I am telling you, you're not to have from this. And it says that Eve looked at it, and it was good for food, lust of the flesh. She said, it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And so 
He tempted her with these three, and she gave in to those, and she ate of the fruit, and Adam ate of the fruit, and they were punished for giving in to the temptation to believe that you could shortcut God's will and be happy. And so I want you to see that when we get to Matthew chapter 4, Satan hasn't changed his tactics at all. And when you know the enemy's tactics, you can prepare yourself for the battle. So let's just requalify these with expressions that I think makes more sense to me and hopefully to you. The first is this. The first kind of temptation we can find is it would make me feel good. Lust of the flesh. I'd sure I'd feel better. I, I, I want this. I desire this. It would, it would give me pleasure. It would give me satisfaction. It would take away my pain. I, I want this. Verses 3 and 4, the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, I want to pause for a moment because this is significant for us to understand Matthew 4 and respect it. Was he hungry? You think, well, duh, 40? No, no, no. Some of us will dismiss this passage like Jesus was a robot. Never really tempted, never really hungry, never thirsty that he sat there going, I'm not hungry. I will never be hungry. No, he was a man. He was a physical man. If you don't open yourself up to the reality The American Medical Association has said that the longest any human being can go on a fast before their body begins to break itself down and damage its internal organs, the longest you can go, can you guess is how many days? 40. I don't want you to read, and he was slightly peckish. (laughs) Nah, he was famished. And the thought of turning a rock into bread, I'd have turned it into pizza, but he would turn it into bread, something would have been good. It'd be a prime rib or something. So he says, turn these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus does something significant here. Here's what takes place. Satan says, if you are the son of God. Seriously? He had no doubt who he was talking to. This is not their first meeting. He's been trying to stop this man from even being born. He has worked throughout the promise in the garden to stop the lineage of the Messiah from coming. When he says to Jesus, if you are the Son of God, he's not saying that because he's unsure. He's trying to make Jesus unsure. And when temptations come that make us wonder if we are God's child, it's not because Satan doesn't know. It's he doesn't want you to know. He's causing each of us to question God in that moment. Jesus knew who, or Satan knew who Jesus was. Let there be no mistake. He was trying to get Jesus to act independently of his father. God would provide Jesus food, and Jesus knew that. When God led him into the wilderness, Jesus stayed there until he was requested out of it. And Satan said, why don't you? Now think about it. It would sure make me feel good if I had some bread. Well, you're capable of turning those stones into bread. Well, why don't you do it? You see, if God loves you so much, Jesus, why are you hungry? If God loves you so much, why are you alone? If God loves you, well, let's stop talking about Jesus for a moment. Let's talk about us. Have you ever felt this in your soul? If God really loved me, why don't I have any money? If God really loved me, why don't I get a promotion? If God really loved me, how can I have cancer? If God really loved me, why is my marriage all jacked up? If God really loved me, why are my kids a mess? So we begin to question the goodness of God. Because we don't feel good right now. And this is one of Satan's reoccurring temptations to all of us. 
is to question God because we're hungry for whatever we're hungry for. So in this moment, Jesus could have turned the stones to bread. Don't deny that for a moment, but he doesn't. Because Jesus was not here to fulfill himself. He was here to fulfill his father. We told you last week when we studied the passage about John baptizing Jesus that John demonstrated for us that his life was not about drawing people to him. It was pointing people to Jesus. And when Jesus arrived, John diminished. And Jesus says in his high priestly prayer of John's chapter 15, 16, and 17, he says to his father, everything you gave me, I've returned to you. Jesus came not to draw all of this on himself or to fulfill himself, but to make sure that everybody knew how fulfilling it was to trust his father. So there we have that. And Jesus responded with, it is written. He used the word of God to correct this premise that I could be fulfilled without God. The second kind of temptation that I want to point out is that it's not that it would make me feel good, but it would make me look good. This would, this would be impressive. People would think something of me. It would draw attention to me. Verses 5 through 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Josephus, this Jewish but Roman historian, says that the point of the temple that he believes has took place, and he wasn't there, but he says there's a point of the temple that's 450 feet above the ground. 150 yards, and Satan takes him up there, and he says, if you jump from here, the crowd would see the angels swoop down and catch you, because the Bible says God would not let your foot land on the stones. And Jesus responds with, it's also written, and I want you to notice what just happened there. In the first temptation, Satan doesn't represent God at all. He just says the absence of God is your issue. In the second temptation, he quotes scripture. And Jesus responds with a corrective scripture. You have to know this. If your knowledge of what the word of God says is kept by the guy on this stage one hour a week, you're going to be betrayed and lied to. Not by me, but by a culture that has defined what the word of God says. You hear the debates in our culture all the time. Well, the Bible says it, but it doesn't mean that. Seriously. I'm telling you that if you don't know the word of God, you can even be misled by the word of God. It is incumbent on all of us that the word of God is in us so that when the lies about the word of God are portrayed, we can stand firmly on God's solid word. And this is exactly what Jesus did. Satan is having Jesus question his relationship to God, the same thing he does to us. In fact, he says, if you throw yourself down, everyone will see that you're special. Everyone will see that you're unique. They'll see the angels come and save you. And that could possibly have been true. But Jesus responds, no, I don't put God to the test. I'm not here to prove God. I'm here to trust God. In fact, Jesus would learn, and he, he knew. You, you'll notice that many times when Jesus would perform a miracle, do you remember what he said to those he healed? Don't, don't tell anybody. He wasn't a circus because he realized the more things he did, the more they expected him to do more instead of taking what he did and learning from it. 
John 12, 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. See, he chose to trust God rather than have God prove himself. So Satan says, so you won't use your power without God's permission. How about you prove how trustworthy your father is? And one of the things that I think is important is, and if, if I can be a social critic today, I think it's important for us to see the world we live in for what it is. There's even churches and ministries that will say, go out and claim a promise. In other words, pull out a verse and tell God, you better do this because you said you would. Be very, very careful about getting in God's face and asking him to prove to you who he is. I think we have enough evidence. I think the crucifixion and the resurrection are all you and I should ever need to realize God's words are true. And if if you can claim all the promises you want, if the timing of God is not right, who are we to ask God to document for us that he's still at work? I think the resurrection is all we should ever need. We are blessed to live on this side of it. And how much more faithful were those who lived in the days of Jesus when they had to wait to understand and they still trusted him. So, you know, Jesus came back with Deuteronomy 6. And if my paraphrase of Deuteronomy 6.16 is simple. You only test what you already don't trust. You put to test those things you haven't trusted yet. So it would sure make me feel good. It would sure make me look good. And the last one is I deserve that. And this is the lust of the eyes. It's found in verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. What's significant here is that I think he could have. And I want you to pause for a moment here. Satan could have given Jesus what every man or woman in the world would deep down admit in their selfishness they would desire, and he could have it right now. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. What's significant is I wish verses 10 and 11 were just one verse. Because when we separate them, we think it's, we take away the connectivity between the flow. Notice what happened. Satan comes and says, I will give you now what you could have later. And most of us think, I deserve that. I've prayed about this. I've waited on the Lord. I go to church. I give money to help good causes. I try to be a good person. I love my family. I put in all this good time. And everyone else is catching breaks. I'm not catching a single break. I'm going to take for myself what God has decided not yet to give me. And Satan said to him, you could have it now. And Jesus said, no, I'll wait. He said, by the way, I didn't come to worship you. I came to worship God. Who do you fetch for? Who are you waiting for his command to respond to? So why wait? You deserve it right now. And that may be true if we deserve anything. It may be true that we deserve it right now. I know for sure what's true is we want it right now. And waiting on the Lord is is crucial. And Jesus said, you shall worship only the Lord your God. And then in that beautiful moment, by his divine authority, he says, get away from me, Satan. And I want you to notice what the Bible says. Satan got away. Satan is not his equal. Jesus went through the temptation as led by the Spirit to reset his heart and mind and to give us an example. Notice that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve gave in to the three temptations. And angels came from heaven and barred them from the Garden of Eden and closed it down and the relationship between man and God had become distant. 
But in Matthew chapter 4, it's all made right. The God came to earth, said no to these temptations, and angels came from heaven to minister to him. Do you see the reversal of Genesis 3 and Matthew 4? It's a beautiful connection. In fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, said, Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Notice the progression of this. Submit to God. So, was Jesus hungry? Yes. Did he desire for the world to know who he was? Yes. And would he have liked to have set everything straight immediately under the authority? Yes. Then why did he say no? Because he was waiting on the Lord's perfect timing and trusting God, even when God delayed. And then it said angels came to minister to him. I'll never forget a moment in college. My roommate, Mike Kiergaard, one of my best friends in the world, he's a preacher in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we were sitting there, and I finally realized that verse for the first time, and I said, dang, angels have never come and ministered to me. And he looked at me, and he goes, because you never say no. And I was like, you're not my friend. But the truth was, it's right. I think I should get a parade every time I obey God instead of, no, that's just what a son does when their father asks them to trust him. So we have this moment. I'd like to close quickly this morning with four important understandings for us from this text. How the gospel comes to you and I. We know that Adam and Eve were faced with these temptations. We know that Job was faced. We know that Abraham and David, all down the line, these temptations are common. We know that Jesus went through them and he overcame them. So what do we learn from this? As you and I face these temptations every day, first of all, we face the same adversary. You must believe that Jesus did not mislead us, that there was an accuser, that there was an adversary. This is not a game. Christianity is not an ethics discussion. It is a life and spiritual death battle for the souls of people because Satan knows he's defeated and he wants to harm God as much as he can before his own day of reckoning. So this isn't a game. And we have the same adversary In Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, I'm going to be reading from the contemporary English version. This made the dragon terribly angry with the woman, so it started a war against the rest of her children. They are the people who obey God and are faithful to what Jesus did and taught. Satan knew who Jesus was because he'd been trying to stop his arrival from the very beginning. He was working desperately to break this chain of faith from Abraham all the way through. And so there... John says in his revelation that there was this woman giving birth and as she was giving birth, there was this dragon that was trying to take the child away. And in that moment, that child was whisked away. We believe that that's when the angel told Joseph to take him to Egypt, that he was whisked away and protected. And Herod's uh, attempt to have him killed as a baby was thwarted, stopped. And so this dragon realizing that this Messiah was the answer to all of our needs has gone after every one of us, the followers and children of this God, trying to take us out before the day the Messiah comes back and sets everything straight. That's why it's not a game. It's a battle for our souls. We also have the same temptations. And I know I've been redundant with that, so I'll be brief. The immortality and the pursuit of immortality in our society is the lust of the flesh. The materialism is the lust of the eyes. The pride and arrogance is the pride of being alive. We face it in everything we do. Everything that tempts you to take a shortcut from God is a temptation of one of these three forms. Thirdly, we have the same authority to overcome. And this is the good news. This is what gospel means, testifying to the good news of Jesus. We have the same authority to overcome. I'm not talking about just being saved. 
I'm talking about the power to live a saved, sanctified, holy life. You see, when we look at all that's taking place, we need to understand that this authority, God does not expect us to be perfect. He does, however, expect us to be powerful. I'll say that again. God is not expecting that you'll be perfect. He is expecting that you'll be powerful. Why? Because he left his Holy Spirit and the power of his word to give us the power we need to overcome. John would say, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. But we don't live that way enough. We live by our own power, our own ability, our own self-will, our own self-control. How's that working? There's a power available to us. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of his heart. This is a powerful passage. Here's what I want you to understand. It is not so important that you know the Bible so you're smarter or have the right information. The power of the word of God is when it is known and experienced. There are smart biblical scholars who know more about the Bible than I know about any other thing in the world who don't know Jesus. So knowing the word of God without practicing the will of God is a futile effort. But trying to practice the will of God without knowing the word of God is a powerless experience. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He does expect us to be powerful because his word works. And if we trust it to every temptation, if there is a temptation, uh, what did the Puritans used to call it? A besetting sin? That obstacle you can't keep tripping over? Find out what the word of God says about that. Find out, is it lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life? And put to memory and begin to study the word of God about that issue in your life and see if the power of God through the Holy Spirit doesn't become alive in you. Lastly, and we have the same blessings when we overcome. The same ministry that the Spirit did for Jesus. The same ministry of recognition that the Holy Spirit gave him at his baptism. The same recognition the Holy Spirit gave him when the angels came and ministered to him. We have that available to us. Look at the way Jesus faced temptation and face it with the same power and authority he used. You can. As his child filled with his Spirit, you can. And look to him as a high priest for those moments when your imperfection startles even you. It says in Hebrews 12, Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility with sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. Satan came after Jesus in the temptations in the wilderness. And Jesus said, no, no, no. And Satan left. Luke tells us in Luke chapter 4, and when the devil had ended every temptation, notice, when he shot every bullet he had, he departed from him until an opportune time, which I believe was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus physically ached and his soul cried out for what was about to happen to him. And then that coward Satan shows up and tries to give him another shortcut to which Jesus responds, is there any other way to do this? And God was silent. And so what did Jesus do? He said no to the shortcut so he could fulfill everything his father wanted. 
You see, there is a power and authority available to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to every one of us. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. He does desire that we live powerfully. So this morning, if, if Jesus, if you're not taking a knee before this great king who's offering you the good news of not only salvation, but a life that builds something that can never be destroyed, love to have a conversation with you. And if you have in the past made that confession, I pray today will you live by the power and prepare your heart to know that the opportun- opportunities are coming again and again and again for Satan to offer us a shortcut. Sure make you feel good. Sure make you look good. Don't you deserve this? If God was really your father, the answer to that is he is. And the blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary and the power of the resurrection is all I need to know. I know who I am in Christ and I know what he means to me. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.